from the heart of our nation's capital. Here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Welcome to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony. Tony will be with you again on Monday, but it's my pleasure to be your host through our afternoon today as we head into Father's Day, and we are going to touch on that just a little bit in the program. First, a couple things to remind you of. This is the year end for the Family Research Council, and want to make sure that you know you have the opportunity to have your contribution doubled before June 30th if you call 800 225-4008 to help us stand for faith, family, and freedom. I encourage you to do so. Again, the number is 800-225-4008. And thank you for making this program and everything FRC does possible. Now, today in the program, uh, some leaders within the Republican Party are jumping in on the Pride Month enthusiasm. What are they saying, and what should the response of Christian conservatives be? We'll talk about that today. It's also Father's Day weekend, and while many continue to make the argument that kids don't specifically need a father as long as they have loving adults in their life, new research once again demonstrates what everyone already really knows, that dads actually matter quite a bit. We'll talk about that as well. There is a new national holiday. You might not even know that today is a national holiday, but it is. It's called Juneteenth. Why is June 19th a day worth remembering? We'll talk about that later in the program as well with Dean Nelson. But first, coming up in the program, but first in the program today, this week more than 130 Republicans signed a letter that was sent to the Secretary of Veterans Affairs urging him to maintain the current law that prohibits the VA from offering abortions or abortion-related services. The effort was led by Congressman Matt Rosendale of Montana, who also helped lead the charge against the Equal Access to Contraception for Veterans Act, calling for a recorded vote on the bill Tuesday that resulted in its defeat. And he joins me now. Congressman Rosendale, welcome to Washington Watch. Thank you so much for having me on today, Joseph. It's a, it's a real privilege. Well, we are glad to have you, and this has been a great week for you, and, you know, the the week that you've had is the reason why we want people in Washington, D.C. Um, even when you're in the minority, you can get a lot of things done, can't you? And, and I want to start off by um, talking about the Equal Access to Contraception for Veterans Act. A lot of words there. It's probably something most people aren't aware of. Tell me what it is and why it is that, that you objected and, and, and voted against it. Uh, Joseph, I tell you, the uh, that went through the 116th Congress on a voice vote, and I was stunned to hear that uh, the Republicans just allowed that to pass through in the 116th. And when I discovered that it was going to be brought before our Veterans Affairs Committee, I demanded a vote in committee, and because we discovered that it was not only going to provide uh, contraception through the VA at no cost, which means it's going to be the taxpayer's cost, but that includes Plan B and similar abortifacient drugs that most of, I would think, your listeners and certainly my supporters are against using taxpayers' dollars to provide. I mean, this brings an end to a life. As I recognize it. it, it truly does. And so we were able to get the Republicans on the committee that uh, did not have legislation uh, co-mingled, if you will, with that to vote against it. And then 
as the Democrats have completely perverted the system on the floor and the uh, the uh, process that we use, they have been uh, asking for votes to go through on a suspension and a unanimous consent where literally legislation gets passed without members voting upon it. And that's where I went down and demanded the roll call vote. And by doing so, that's where you force it to a two-thirds majority it would require for that bill to pass. And by making the calls, talking to the other congressmen uh, throughout the Republican caucus, we were able to get 188 of the members to vote against that legislation to defeat it. Well, we appreciate your alertness to this issue, and I think uh, what you described, you described well in that um, this, in a microcosm, is just part of a broader debate we've been having for decades, literally, whether it's uh, federal funding of Planned Parenthood or uh, abortion contraceptive and plan B in in all sorts of other programs throughout the federal government. And this is just another place where that debate is, is taken place. Do, does, should the government force people to pay for things that they have a, a religious objection to? It is kind of, it's not an age old debate yet, but it is an old debate now. And, and you have been alert to it. Now you, you mentioned just, there, there's a lot of procedure in here that I don't want to get too bogged down on, but why would Congress, um, do any vote that is just a voice vote where people aren't actually recorded in how they voted? Okay, that is a great question, Joseph, and, and it's stunning. After serving in the Montana legislature, you could never pass legislation that way. U.S. Congress has granted themselves through their rulemaking the ability to pass legislation, and I don't mean just by the names of new post offices. I mean substantive pieces of legislation that spend billions of dollars on what they call a voice vote, and they come in on typically Monday, and they, they uh, state the, the pieces of legislation, and then they say, with, uh, without objection, this is considered passed by unanimous consent. And there could literally – I have been on the floor objecting to these, where there is one Democrat, one Republican – and, and that is it. And without anyone there to object to it, they literally pass those pieces of legislation by, in air quotes, unanimous consent so that it goes on the record as being passed unanimously. And there's a lot of members who are willing to allow that to happen so that they can go back to their districts and say, I didn't vote for that piece of legislation, but yet they don't want to stand up and say, no. I voted against that because it's wrong, and the people that elected me do not want to see their tax dollars being used for this type of act. So that's a procedure uh, through which politicians can have their cake and eat it as well. Is that right? That is exactly right, and, and it is, it's, uh, it's terrible. And so myself and many of my colleagues, we've got several very strong members that have said we are not going to allow this to happen. Uh, I think that you're probably familiar with my colleague to the south in Colorado, Congresswoman Lauren Boebert. She did the exact same thing for another piece of legislation that day. It was like everyone discovered, Joseph, that day that even as the minority, we were able to defeat bad legislation, and it was an awakening. And so we were able to defeat two pieces of, of legislation last week.
And, and I, I want to bring this to people's attention just so they understand some of the games because, um, you know, there's a lot of there, – there's not – there is bipartisanship in in Washington D.C. and some of the things people come across on a in a bipartisan way uh, to do is to allow each other to avoid accountability to their voters. And really, this is just something where they say, "Hey, um, you know, I don't want to say I voted for it. I don't want to say I supported it, but I also don't want to say I voted against it. So, regardless of what side my constituents are on, I can I can phrase my response in a way that makes them think I'm on their side. And it's just a game that." that um, allows politicians to avoid accountability. And we appreciate you there making sure that people are going to be accountable because without accountability, um, we're not in charge, are we, as voters? That you, are, you are 100% accurate. And it all started back at the committee level where they were going to allow it to pass out a committee with a voice vote. And that way, again, it gave the, the uh, different members that cover, if yeah. you will, to be able to, to, to talk to whichever block of voters they wanted to and say that they were for something or against something and they didn't really have to live with the results of it. And I said, no, we're going to have a recorded vote on this. We're going to have people get on the record. They're going to have to stake out their territory, whether they support this or whether they don't support it, and then they can go back to their voters and explain. Well, that isn't the only thing you've been advocating for life on this week. You sent a letter to the Secretary of Veterans Affair, Affairs. Um, tell us about that letter and what you were trying to accomplish there. And, and basically, we did that first, Joseph, because I had uh, had Secretary McDonough in some hearings, and I asked him pointed, uh, was he going to maintain the current laws within the department, which prohibit the VA from performing abortions or providing abortion counseling. And he said that he had no intention of making any changes. But we have seen such a lurch to the radical left with this Biden agenda that there was no way that I could just take that um, as, as that's how the, this administration is going to handle this going forward. McDonough serves at the at the privilege of the president, and the president is the one who's going to be able to come in and, and push this legislation forward that could try to force funding, taxpayer funding for abortions or abortion counseling. So we drafted the letter. I was able to very easily get 100 – you said – 130. It was nearly 140. It was 137 members of Congress, Republican members of Congress, I might add, uh, to sign on to this letter to urge Secretary McDonough to maintain those those policies. And and so they are on the record. There's a lot of good people that are willing to step up and, and take the vote. Do you expect a response? I don't because because he's going to have to uh, to bow to the will of the Biden administration. And, and as we have seen, it is a completely radical, extreme um, agenda. And, and I've got grave concerns. They literally the Democratic Party is the party of death. They, they believe on abortions on demand. And, and it's up to the Republican Party to protect life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And that's where it all begins. It's right there at the conception. Well, on that point, uh, yesterday, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi was asked by a reporter whether a 15-week-old unborn baby is a human being. I'd like to play that clip for you and get your response. 
The Supreme Court this fall will review a Mississippi law that bans most abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy. Is an unborn baby at 15 weeks a human being? Let me just say that I am a big supporter of Roe v. Wade. Uh, I am a mother of five children in six years. I think I have some standing on this issue as to respecting a woman's right to choose. Well, uh, what do you make of the speaker's response there to the question of whether a 15-week-old unborn baby is a human being? It's, it's just stunning and, and frightening. For the party that, that proclaims the, uh, their belief in science, um, anyone knows that at 15 weeks, we certainly can show that a, a fetus, a baby, has separate and unique DNA. And that's exactly why we needed to send that letter to Secretary McDonough, because when we have the Speaker of the House making statements like that, showing, as they have in the past, that they are willing to not only abort a baby up until delivery, but they are willing to withhold medical treatment from a child that, that has just been born. It's, it's, it's frightening. Well, and it really is the science. It is a unique, unrepeatable human being. Um, she even knows that, and she, is, I think, essentially admits that in her refusal to answer the question because uh, as somebody who is required to be enthusiastically pro-abortion, there's not a way to answer that question that, that, is, that is helpful to her, so she just refuses to. And Congressman Rosendale, thank you so much uh, for your efforts on Capitol Hill this week and for joining us today. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Jovis, Joseph. Well, and we will have him back because he is one of the good, good ones uh, on Washington, D.C., especially on life. Coming up, uh, we are going to talk about why the Republican Party is supporting some people, supporting pride events. What should you do about it? We'll talk about it next. What is Roe versus Wade and what did it do? The Supreme Court's 1973 decision ruled that abortion is protected under the U.S. Constitution, striking down many state abortion restrictions and severely limiting the extent to which states could write their own abortion laws. The Supreme Court's limitations on states to legislate abortion restrictions depends on the trimester of a pregnancy. For instance, Roe disallows states from restricting abortions in the first trimester, but allows some restrictions on abortions in the third trimester. What Roe doesn't do is require states to have any restrictions. Abortion through all nine months of pregnancy is the default, unless Congress or the individual states pass laws restricting it. That leaves a lot of room for unrestricted abortions. For a full explanation of how Roe v. Wade liberalized abortion laws, go to frc.org explainer. That's frc.org explainer. After the recent wave of media censorship, are you struggling to find a conservative, relevant, and Christian platform where you can find out what's really going on? Here at Family Research Council, we believe that Americans have a right to exercise their freedom of speech and share their stories with the world. If you're ready to hear the facts that the left doesn't want you to know about, then head over to frcblog.com to check out our latest blog posts. We cover a wide range of issues you and your family care about, all written by our policy, government affairs, and biblical worldview experts. We discuss topics that other media platforms won't, like changes in pro-life policy, current events that affect Christians internationally, sexuality from a biblical perspective, and insights into the bigger picture of the shift in American culture. To stay up to date on current news related to faith, 
family, and freedom, visit frcblog.com. That's frcblog.com. Would you like to spend more time in God's Word? Then join Family Research Council on an exciting journey through the Bible with their Stand on the Word Bible Reading Plan. FRC's two-year Bible reading plan helps you to approach daily Bible reading with an intentional focus of diving deeper into the nature of God and how His Word speaks into cultural issues. By studying the Bible, we can see the grandeur of God unfold throughout the past. This reading plan takes you through the Bible as events happen in history. Laying out the scripture every day in an engaging manner, it is key to helping us stay grounded in God's truth. All wisdom comes from God, and He has given us the Bible as a way to understand the world. Start reading today with Family Research Council. When you sign up, we text you every Sunday with daily passages and questions that help prepare you for conversations with your friends and family. To begin this journey, visit frc.org Bible. Welcome back to Washington Watch. Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony. Unless you've been sitting under a rock, you have probably been seeing rainbows and pro-LGBTQ messaging at just about every turn this month. And that shouldn't be a surprise considering how a Gallup poll earlier this month revealed that 70% of Americans now support same-sex marriage, an all-time high. But what might be surprising is what came out on the second day of the month from GOP chairwoman Ronna McDaniel. In a social media post on Twitter, she tweeted that the GOP is, quote, proud to have doubled our LGBTQ support over the last four years, and we will continue to grow our big tent by supporting measures that promote fairness and balance protections for LGBTQ Americans and those with deeply held religious beliefs, end quote. Well, that tweet has prompted many on the right to call on conservatives to start funding candidates directly bypassing the Republican Party. Joining me now to talk about this is one of those who have issued that call, Rob Chambers, Vice President of AFA Action. Rob, welcome to Washington Watch. Hey, thanks, Joseph. Appreciate it much. Well, we're glad to have you. Uh, what was your initial reaction when you saw McDaniel's tweet? Well, I thought it was uh, it was I was actually shocked at first. You know, I thought, wow, you know, I can't believe that the uh, GOP head would uh, actually issue something like this uh, publicly, especially on the the second day of, of uh, so-called GOP or <laughs> GOP Pride Month, LGBT Pride Month. So yeah, I was a bit taken back. But um, you know, after I read into the into the uh, into her tweet, there I began to realize that you know she's really basically, in in my opinion or our opinion is uh, basically starting or filling the narrative to uh, grow the big ten of the GOP, which would include uh, the LGBT agenda. And what's interesting about it is her statement. She said she wanted a big tent, and I think everybody in politics welcomes anybody who wants to vote for them to vote for them. But she kind of actually went into some detail saying that they want to promote fairness and balance protections for LGBTQ Americans with those of deeply held religious beliefs. And that seems to be kind of a hat tip toward their policy objectives, which are actually um, in direct contrast to the policy positions of the GOP, aren't they? It really is. It's it's antithetical to the GOP platform. It's obviously uh, antithetical to uh, to scriptural mandates and to uh, into the Bible. But yeah, it, it's just totally contradictory to what the GOP party platform uh, has in place. So why in the world would the GOP, 
chairwoman issue uh, basically a call that, to do something that would be in direct contradiction to what the party stands for. Do you feel like you've gotten an answer to that question from anyone inside the GOP? Well, I have not. I've had some. Uh, had a, I've had had a conversation with uh, with someone in GOP leadership, and and uh, had a phone conversation as well as an email uh, message as well. So nothing yet has uh, have not heard anything back from the GOP uh, leadership. So um, I have fo- I've looked at Rana's tweets um, since June second. Have not seen anything that would in- that would lead me to believe that she is. Uh, or she or the party has strong uh, or robust protections for uh, Christian business owners, for example, uh, like uh, Aaron and Melissa Klein or even uh, Jack Phillips, for example. So I have not seen anything that indicates to me uh, how the GOP wants to uh, support uh, Christian business owners, for example. Yeah, to me, the most concerning part about her statement was this idea of we want to balance the LGBT rights with the First Amendment. And I think um, the the facts are very clear that these are uh, mutually exclusive options. You can either have non-discrimination rights, uh, non-discrimination laws with strong protections based on gender identity and sexual orientation, mm-hmm. or you can have the First Amendment because the protections, quote unquote, that the LGBT uh, political activists are acting are are asking for. Um, don't allow for the freedom of association, the freedom of religion, and the freedom of speech, do they? Well, no, no, they don't. You know, they are mutually exclusive. And, and what uh, Rana and even uh, some of her faith tend to, I think, uh, don't understand is that that religious freedom is is something that comes from God. It's not dispensed by government. The role of government is to protect uh, religious liberty, and uh, and so what in her tweet, the way I read this, is that she's basically wanting to uh, ask people of faith to give up some of their uh, their uh, religious freedom uh, that's given to them by God. And to surrender that at the altar of the GOP political correctness to basically uh, count out to the LGBT uh, agenda. What would your advice be to the GOP on how to, you know, I, I would say from their perspective, they just want to attract new voters and they want everybody to kind of join their, you know, their freedom party. What would your advice be to them on how to handle what are really tricky issues with the LGBT lobby? Well, uh, first of all, to be clear, the, the party GOP needs to be clear where they stand on uh, on religious liberty, as it rela- especially as it relates to uh, business owners, and uh, and to be uh, make that very well known. They make it that public uh, tweet, whatever they can. Uh, they could double down on their uh, party platform that they've yeah. already done. But uh, there's uh, there there is nothing wrong for uh, maybe someone that's liberal uh, or even moderate to vote for a, a GOP candidate, but to change the party's values or to signal that they are you know okay with changing the party's values just to get that vote, uh, you know that's not going to wise with conservatives, conservatives and evangelicals even. Yeah, and, and from a biblical perspective, uh, the, the goal is is faithfulness. It's not political victory. And in, in, in faithfulness, you ultimately God prevails. But we should not uh, compromise. The truth for that. Now, I, one other, I, you've called, you are one of the people, Rob, that has called for the people to bypass the Republican Party with their contribution and just give directly to candidates. Why have you done that? And how, what do you think that will accomplish? Well, I think I think uh, the reason that, that we are calling on uh, 
on donors to the traditional or historic donors to the GOP to to bypass the party and give directly to candidates is because the party has shown or is showing that they aren't uh, faithful to their own party platform. So why would uh, why would donors want to give their money to the GOP that would be uh, open or even supportive of uh, values that would be antithetical to their own values? So so that's why we say give straight to the candidate. Yeah, do you think the, the GOP, the party leadership, is hearing that message? Uh, I think they have heard it. But I don't think they're listening, though. Well, and, and, and that is, that's a very good point. We are going to find out soon because, again, you know, 2022 is approaching and everybody's invested. We'll see how they handle that. Uh, Rob Chambers, Vice President of AFA Action, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Mike. Coming up, just in time for Father's Day, there is new research highlighting that two-parent households actually do matter. Um, What is that research? It's not surprising to you. It's not surprising to me. But somehow, we've been hearing the argument made that that doesn't really matter if you have a mother and father. You just need adults around who love you. Is it true? We'll talk about it right after the break. Come on back. Where do you get your news? Do you have confidence you're getting the full truth? If you want to stay up to date on conservative news and are looking for Christian resources to help you stay politically engaged, then download Family Research Council's Stand Firm app. With all of our content available at your fingertips, you will conveniently be able to stay up to date throughout your busy day. The Stand Firm app will give you access to a variety of resources such as our most recent radio programs, social media posts, and publications. Additionally, you will have the opportunity to take action and make your voice heard by contacting your elected officials on the issues that most concern you. Visit the App Store on your smartphone or mobile device and search Stand Firm to download Family Research Council's official Stand Firm app. Stay informed with a trusted source. Again, search Stand Firm to download the Stand Firm app. As the political and cultural landscape of our nation has shifted in a concerning direction, it is so important for Christians to be equipped with biblical answers for the difficult questions of our time. That is why Family Research Council created our Biblical Worldview series. With the political left changing definitions to favor their narrative and to push their agenda, at times it can be hard to decipher what is true. That is why we must hold to the truth of the Bible, which stands the test of time. It holds the truth that does not change. Become equipped to stand firm in the face of cultural and political storms with FRC's Biblical Worldview series. This series dives deep into what the Bible says about some of the most crucial issues of our day. You'll learn what the Bible teaches on abortion, same-sex marriage, the separation of church and state, religious freedom, and the age-old question, should Christians be involved in politics? To access this series, visit frc.org worldview. That's frc.org worldview. Welcome back to Washington Watch. You can find this every episode at TonyPerkins.com. My name is Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony. The long-held consensus view of scholars and researchers has been that children are more likely to flourish in an intact two-parent family compelled to children in single-parent or step-families. But this consensus view is now being challenged by a new generation of scholars, with some calling it a myth. 
Blackwell, a new report released yesterday by the Institute for Family Studies examined the latest census data and the National Longitudinal Survey of Youth. And it confirms that children from intact homes are significantly more likely to be flourishing economically, educationally, and socially. With me now to talk about the finding is Ian Rowe, who co-authored the research brief. And he is a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and the CEO of Vertex Partnership Academies. Ian, welcome to Washington Watch. Thank you very much for having me and covering this report. Well, we are glad that you have brought us this report, and we're happy to talk about it, especially here on the eve of Father's Day. Your study examined three outcomes for kids, uh, poverty, education, and incarceration. What was your finding? How did family structure affect those outcomes for children? Yeah, and I want to thank you for highlighting that it has been sort of settled uh, for decades uh, from the scientific community, that a child raised in a married-to-parent household uh, in almost every dimension has better outcomes than uh, raised in a single-parent household or stepfamily. Yes, there are exceptions, but it has been settled. And as you say, there has been some questioning of this. And so we put it to the test, and we produced a report uh, that, based on the results, we entitled it Less Poverty, Less Prison, and More College, The Truth about two parents, black children, and white children. And what we did was we asked, we investigated two basic questions. Are black children more likely to flourish in an intact two-parent home with their mother and father compared to black children raised by single parents or stepfamilies? And as you say, there were three specific outcomes we wanted to measure. Child poverty, and not just education, college graduation specifically, and incarceration. And then we ask, is the association between family structure and child outcomes markedly different by race? So just one piece of data, if you were a child, black child, living with a single parent, 46% of the time you experience child poverty. But a black child living uh, with two parents in their first marriage, only 13%. That is a three and a half times multiplier, massive difference. And, and again, we must caution and say we can't establish causality, but this is deep correlation across many, many different types of studies in this fashion. And, and tell us, I mean, that is a huge number when you talk to 46% to 13% chance of being in poverty. And th- this goes all the way back to, to Daniel Moynihan's study um, when, when he kind of discovered the the success sequence that all you had to do in America essentially to avoid poverty is graduate from high school, um, get a job, and then don't have a kid before you get married. If you do those three things, you're going to be successful. Is there any reason, or at least you're not going to be in poverty. Is there any reason to think that's changed? No. Uh, You know, when Daniel Patrick Moynihan did that study back in the mid-60s, the non-marital birth rate for the black community was 23.5%. And at that time, he was saying this is a crisis of huge proportions because at the time, the non-marital birth rate in the, black, in the white community was about 5%, 6%. Fast forward 50, 60 years, the non-marital birth rate in the black community is now nearly 70%. And in the white community, it's nearly 30%, higher than what the crisis levels were in the mid-60s. And in the white community, these numbers are actually increasing at the highest rate. So this has become what I call an equal opportunity tsunami. 
because we're seeing the effects of non-marital birth rates across race. And in fact, in our study, we learned that a black child raised in a married two-parent household is less likely to be incarcerated than a white child who is raised by a single parent. So we're really starting to see the real effects of family structure regardless of race. If this is what the data shows, why are there some arguing effectively that two parents doesn't really matter? Dads, you don't, you don't, you know, as long as you have loving adults around, that's the most important thing for a kid to succeed. Why are we seeing the value of parents minimized if the data is showing that they're really, really important? You know, it's a really good question, and and I think in the in our sort of national reckoning on race, when we're having discussions around racial disparities. There's an emerging narrative that those racial disparities are solely being driven by structural racism, systemic barriers. And so if there's another sort of idea out there that says, well, maybe family structure might matter, I think there's a, there's a desire to sort of shut that out so that the focus can be on systemic barriers. And then if you do talk about non-marital birth rates or family structure, the accusation is, well, you're blaming the victim. You're, you're saying that the people themselves who are facing the plight, they're responsible for their, their own predicament. And I think that that's just a false, a false uh, binary that's being set up. No, but it is being set up, and I think it's part of this broader war on, on the family and this idea that, well, family units are actually oppressive, and, and they stifle the individuality and the ability of every no, individual to live their truth. I mean, is there any connection? No. No. Uh, family is, is the, the building block of our society and the building block of agency. What compels young people to start to believe that they can lead their own self-determined life through the support of the first institution, which is the family. That's right. Ian Rowe, American Enterprise Institute, greatly appreciate your studies on this and for keeping us informed. Really appreciate Thank it. Thank you. Thank you. And we're going to continue this conversation about the, the extent to which race is relevant to all of this because it is Juneteenth. We'll talk about that next. Stay with us. Get a trusted perspective on the news of the day every day. Listen to Washington Watch with Tony Perkins to get honest and in-depth commentary on what's going on in our nation's capital and around the world. Join Family Research Council President Tony Perkins, live every weekday by tuning into Washington Watch on the American Family Radio Network, Bot Radio, the KTLW Radio Network, and independent Christian radio stations across the country. Or listen to the show when it works for you by visiting TonyPerkins.com. Since the Supreme Court decided Roe v. Wade in 1973, over 60 million people are now missing from our country due to legalized abortion. Public opinion, our knowledge of law, and scientific advancements demonstrate that Roe should by no means be considered settled law. Roe is an abomination in our country's history, and it's time for the horrendous practice of legalized abortion to end. To learn more about the legal, historical, and cultural reasons to overturn Roe v. Wade, go to frc.org slash Roe. The Equality Act sounds like good legislation and something that ought to have bipartisan support, but it doesn't. Why? Because the Equality Act, paradoxically, would spur inequality. It is Trojan horse legislation that would hinder equality and would massively overhaul our federal civil rights framework. The stated purpose of the bill is to prohibit discrimination on the basis of sex, gender identity, and sexual orientation. 
The real effect of this bill would not be to eliminate discrimination, but to erase the freedom to hold a different opinion. The Equality Act would mandate government-imposed inequality by requiring acceptance of a particular ideology about sexual ethics, while leaving no room for legitimate public debate. Simply put, the Equality Act mandates an anti-life, anti-family, and anti-faith agenda throughout federal law and would be a disaster for all Americans. To learn more about the inequality of the Equality Act, visit frc.org slash Equality Act. Since June of 2015, over 12,000 Christians have been killed in Nigeria. This violence has reached a point at which experts are warning of a progressive genocide specifically targeting Christians across Africa's largest and most economically powerful nation. Yet this violence often goes unreported in the media, and if reported, is seriously downplayed. To learn more about what is actually taking place in Nigeria, along with other countries where Christians face persecution, visit frc.org slash Nigeria. Did you know that Planned Parenthood is the biggest abortion supplier in the U.S.? According to Planned Parenthood's most recent annual report, it committed 354,871 abortions in fiscal year 2019, up by over 9,000 abortions since 2018. According to these numbers, Planned Parenthood aborted 972 babies every single day. To learn more about what Planned Parenthood is really doing, visit frc.org slash Planned Parenthood facts. Welcome back to Washington Watch. Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony. Yesterday, President Biden made Juneteenth a federal holiday by signing into law a bill that passed in the House the day before by a 415 to 14 vote. I'm grateful to the members of Congress here today, in particular the Congressional Black Caucus, who did so much to make this day possible. I'm especially pleased that we showed the nation that we can come together as Democrats and Republicans to commemorate this day with an overwhelming bipartisan support of the Congress. I hope this is the beginning of a change in the way we deal with one another. Given how rare bipartisanship is these days, it's worth noting why there is so much support for this date, this national holiday, which many across America were not even aware of until last year, when the issue of race was brought to the forefront following the death of George Floyd. Here with me now to help unpack this holiday and its significance is Dean Nelson, the Senior Fellow for African American Affairs here at FRC. Dean, welcome back to the program. Joseph, thanks so much for having me. Well, tell me first your reaction to Juneteenth becoming a national holiday. Well, I think that it is great, even as President Biden said, for our nation to come together to honor uh, a holiday kind of cross, uh, you know, the bipartisan, uh, you know, challenges that we typically have. I think it's something that is worthy for our nation to recognize. Some states like Texas, for instance, have had it as a holiday for uh, for years. And uh, I do believe it's a great opportunity for Americans to focus on uh, some of the celebrations of where we have come from. And uh, Juneteenth, I'm hoping that can provide that kind of holiday for all of us. Well, you you just stole my thunder a little bit, but I actually saw somebody on Twitter today uh, make the comment that this is basically just the rest of America becoming more like Texas because they have, in fact, been celebrating this for 41 years. But it does beg the question, why do you think it's taken this long? 
Well, you know, Juneteenth is a holiday that is meaningful in Texas because that's really where the incident occurred. Uh, you know, if you go back to, you know, when the Union Army uh, officer, you know, made his way ultimately to Galveston to let some slaves know that the war was over and that they no longer were slaves. So it is in that sense. Um, very particular to Texas, but I think that as the word spread about that and over the years, um, with some of the recent things, as you mentioned, that we've seen uh, with the death of George Floyd, uh, more Americans have become aware of it. Uh, our organization, the Frederick Douglass Foundation and the Douglass Leadership Institute, have celebrated uh, Juneteenth for years. Uh, and to be honest, it's something that Christians, uh, I think, as well as conservatives and specifically even Republicans, if we simply talk about history, uh, really should own. And I think it's important for us not to forget about that historical element as well. I think that's a really good point, and I think that it is something we can all celebrate. But I, I don't know how mu how much of a historian you are of this event. But tell us a little bit more about the history. This this Union General. How long did it take uh, for these slaves in Texas to get word that they were in fact free? Yeah, man, it was actually you know two years, uh, I believe, after. Um, you know, it, they really had the opportunity to be free. So this, uh, this would have taken place, uh, you know, and they celebrated it, you know, on the, the 19th, which is actually tomorrow. So really, uh, two years after, uh, slaves were, were actually free when they got the word in Galveston, Texas. Um, so it, 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 they didn't have what we have today, right? I mean, the internet and, uh, they didn't have, uh, you know, cell phones and that type of thing. So, but it's still hard to think about people being legally free, um, but not really free for two whole years. Um, but we're grateful for the celebration. Glad to know that, you know, Texas started it and uh, just really glad that America, I believe, can look at uh, this holiday and really celebrate the idea uh, of freedom for all Americans. I think it has to be one of the the best events in our history. If we go through the timeline, when you know the the end of slavery, what's better than that? I mean, we've had a lot of we've had a lot of good days, but there's not many that have been better than the fact that we have actually officially formally ended slavery. But you know, on a personal note, I actually I'm, I'm born and raised Northwest. Uh, you know, kind of the corner of the world, doesn't have a lot of the history that uh, the other parts of the country have. The, the fact is, I'd never heard of Juneteenth until last year um, because uh, I, I believe that uh, President Trump, then President Trump, had a rally uh, scheduled for Juneteenth in Tulsa, and it became a scandal because it was said to be kind of done in conflict with Juneteenth, and I think they were saying he'd done so purposely try to, to try to distract from this holiday. How can it be that somebody who's actually, you know, fairly engaged in public policy in the world of, you know, law and politics and those things, I went 40-plus years, and I'd never even heard the term. Why do you think that was? You know, I think there are a lot of things, you know, in our culture that, you know, don't get transmitted uh, very well, Joseph. And uh, I, I think it's even possible that this holiday, because early on it was a holiday that was largely celebrated uh, by those that were a part of the Union. It was celebrated by those formerly slaves. And so in some parts of, uh, you know, of, you know, the country, it just 
wasn't a big deal. And um, our organization and others have tried to highlight it, to emphasize it. But um, I think largely it was just one of those things that was lost in some places just because it didn't have as much significance. I mean, if you, as you stated, you know, in the great Northwest where, you know, they didn't really have this, I mean, they became states, you know, after this, I can see why it wasn't as big of a deal. But for me, I am glad uh, as we look back on some of the history of America, there are some really important lessons that I think this emerging generation must learn. I mean, when I talk about some of these things to students, they, they are largely unaware of some of the things that happened even in uh, um, the uh, the civil rights movement. So sure. I, I think that it's incumbent upon one generation uh, to declare and to proclaim some of the great things that have happened in the past to the next. Yeah. Do you believe that the bipartisan support for this, and I mentioned in the opening, uh, the vote for this was 415 to 14. Uh, do you think that will help ease any of the racial tension that we've been experiencing over the last, you know, I don't, you know, however many years you want to go back? I think it has the potential to, particularly when organizations like Family Research Council and others really tell the true history about Juneteenth and things like that. I do think that it does. Though, let's be honest, though, there is a segment of our culture and our society that doesn't want uh, America to heal. They want to keep issues because they want a divided America. But I believe that when organizations like ours can kind of rise to the forefront, own these things, because when we think about it, if we look back, this movement that uh, where from which Juneteenth you know comes from, it was an abolition movement which largely came out of the church. And so I think it's important for um, Christians, I think it's important for social conservatives and others to really own things like this and not always give ground to the left. Uh, I think when we are able to highlight these things, uh, I believe that it gives the opportunity to heal some of the challenges that we have. I think that's a really good point. And, but to your, your point about the fact that there are some who may not want our divisions to heal, I was surprised by the headline in the Seattle Times today. And it, was, it, said, it featured an editorial, and here's the title, the headline. It said, When Juneteenth was just ours, reflecting on the national recognition of a holiday that was once just for black folks. Is there a sentiment or is there going to be a sentiment that this is now white people just taking over something? No, there certainly, again, are elements that could highlight it that way. But Juneteenth was a celebration originally that was owned by whites and blacks. In Texas, for example, the GOP started with blacks and whites forming it together. The Republican Party history in Georgia was starting in an African-American church with, you know, people who wanted to help African-Americans elevate their status in society and end slavery. So I think that it is a huge opportunity for people that are from different ethnic backgrounds to be able to come together to highlight our unity rather than allowing those dissenting voices to try to divide us. There's no, there's no doubt in my mind that kind of the, the politics of the last year, um, when we had the, the death of George Floyd, everything, the, the fallout of all of that, um, 
the current conversation about critical race theory, which is happening in school board meetings, it's happening in state legislatures, it's happening at the Southern Baptist Convention. I think all of that is is relevant to the fact that people have come together and made Juneteenth a national holiday this year. What's your perspective on the state of race relations generally in America today? Yeah, uh, I think that if you really look at um, people who work together, um, people who are involved in organizations together, by and large, I think Americans are getting along together. But I do believe that when we do have uh, flashpoints within our culture that shock us, like you know the death of George Floyd, or you know other items. When it seems that in the news there are a lot of you know black men that are being you know uh, shot by police, I think it's okay for us to acknowledge those things. But my hope is is that we're able to, particularly those from the household of faith be able to highlight the successes that we have had together. The civil rights movement would not have happened um, if it were not, you know, blacks and whites that were marching together. The abolition movement would not have had its success if it were not for people like William Lloyd Garrison and Frederick Douglass. And so I believe that it demonstrates for us every time an opportunity for us to work together to be able to have a voice that heals our land as opposed to looking at, um, you know, examples of divisiveness. You know, Dean, you and I are different in some ways and, you know, our skin pig- pigmentation, but at the, at our core, you know, we, we, we share the same beliefs. And, and I think that that exists within the church across the spectrum. But what would your advice be to someone like me and those like me um, about how to respond to something like George Floyd when it may it, it may um, bring up emotions that we don't necessarily understand or we can't relate to. How do you think Christians, and, and specifically white Christians, should react in those moments? Yeah, man, I think that it's important. Grace uh, and truth, I think both of those things are extremely important. Um, I think that we need to give each other uh, um, and show each other deference uh, when we come from different backgrounds, there are a lot of people that are of my <laughs> racial background that I don't agree with uh, on a lot of issues. But we tend to show people deference if we're trying to work together to solve some of the critical issues that we're facing within our culture. And so my my advice is, number one, uh, always demonstrate grace, um, showing deference to people letting other people express their thoughts and their opinions, but it has to be founded, though, on truth. And I believe that when we hear the truth about the stories of a Frederick Douglass, who, through an idea of repentance, restoration, uh, and forgiveness, um, could be a great abolitionist to challenge the institution of slavery, but at the same time would be able to forgive the same person that had enslaved him. Those are uniquely Christian, and I believe that we as Christians have a huge opportunity across ethnic lines Mm -hmm. to come together, as it says in Ephesians chapter 4, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. I think it's a great opportunity for the church. Yeah, that's a great point, and and I dare say it's also one of the reasons why James tells us in James chapter 1 to be 
slow to speak and quick to listen. And uh, in a in a Twitter world that is uh, prone to hot takes, we are uh, encouraged to be quick to speak and and slow to listen. But I do think that might be um, part of the problem, Dean. Do you see anything that encourages you in this sense about where we as the church are heading, where we as a country are heading? Yeah, I think that, you know, even just a simple act of us, you know, coming together uh, to honor, you know, this holiday nationally is uh, is a step in the right direction. Um, my hope is is that we would continue to look for opportunities to uh, to work together. Uh, I think that there are good examples that are out there. Um, certainly, when I think about the Family Research Council and the work that their pastors coalition does by working cross denominationally, by working uh, with a lot of different ethnic backgrounds. I'm really proud to be a part of, uh, of FRC's team that does that around the country. And I do see signs where there are people that are pushing back uh, against ideas of like critical race theory. Some black Americans who basically are saying, hey, listen, um, I don't see the world simply through race. I can acknowledge that there are problems that have happened, but I'm looking at this through the lens of, of a Christian worldview, which includes grace, truth, and the idea of restoration. And I believe that those are some of the key things that can help us to be successful. And uh, to the degree that we can highlight good examples like that around the country, I think that we'll be the better for it. Amen. In, in a world that is constantly encouraging us to identify first with our skin, skin color, the gospel and encourage us, encourages us and requires us to identify first with Jesus. And if we do that, that does unite us across whatever other lines there are. Dean Nelson, Senior Fellow for African American Affairs, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for joining us today. Really appreciate it. Bless you, man. Thanks so much. And we will continue that conversation because it is a critical one. Um, and and it, it, there's so much at, at the heart of who we are, uh, what we're about, what's important, who we are as a country, who we are as a church. Uh, we need to continue that conversation. And we will over the weekend as well because it's Father's Day. And bless your father. Thank, be thankful for your father. Reach out. Say you love him. Uh, let him know how important they are because... They are really, really important. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at one 866 372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234.